0: all these different brands of salon loss and, you know, they basically help you find a location and then you're paying them a 6% royalty for the next 10 years. And at first it's like, this is really cool. You helped me start a business, but once you're up and running and they know the business, it's like you kind of feel a little jaded and a little irritated that you keep paying somebody for something you could do yourself. Right? And so that sat with me for a long time. How do we find a marriage where we're not only just like helping you set up and then you do your thing, but we're a strategic partner that's providing value for the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. And that's where the reception and the marketing came in. It's like, okay, yeah, we're not only gonna provide you a really strong brand, we're also doing the reception for you and the marketing and we're a partner in this. And I needed that to make us have that connection that would last more than just startup.
1: Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through
2: franchise ownership. Allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you.
1: Hello, everyone on the Franchise Founders Podcast. Thanks for jumping in. Excited to start this episode. First, before we get into anything, Christian, how are you doing today? Awesome as always,
2: man. Excited for the guests we have. Super pumped.
1: Yeah, me too. I've been excited about this podcast episode, been doing a lot of podcasts lately and working on getting better and better at being a host or a co host. So, today's guest is someone that I met recently. You know, a lot of times I'm traveling and I think to myself, like, you know, what am I doing? All this travel, fly here, fly there. You know, you're spending money, you're out of the office doing that. And every time I travel, there's a Moment, whether it's a day later, a week later, or sometimes even years later, where I look back at that event and know that I wouldn't have had, you know, some type of relationship or partnership or opportunity because of an event. Right? I was at the franchise tailgate in Nashville, and I met Brian Dallas, who's our guest today, and the CEO of Hello Sugar, and we got into a really great conversation about building a business and the potential of exiting a business. And he was explaining his company to me and. Figured it would be a good time to have him
0: on our show. How you doing, Brigham? Man, I'm doing good and happy to be here. You guys are really kind to have me on the show. A little too kind on the words there, Christian. Don't get too excited yet. You know we haven't heard it yet, but thanks, guys, for having me.
1: Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks. As you know, we never do the bio, so I was hoping you could start by telling our audience a little bit about you and and your company.
0: Oh uh, yeah, jeez, okay. I'm 35, Brigham. I live in Arizona. A little bio on me. So I dropped out of college and I started traveling. And I traveled for about four years across the world. I learned languages. I speak French. I speak Spanish. And I, for a long time, I lived in a hut, a bungalow grass hut in some random island in Thailand. And while I was over there, the guy beside me was like an SEO guru. And when you're on an island, you have nothing to do. And so this guy all day long was just teaching me things about SEO, about PPC, and it became my like school of the hard knocks university. And I started a business because, you know, you can't pick coconuts to make money, right? (laughs) You got to figure something out online. I started a business doing Google ads and then Facebook ads. And I know that's like totally opposite of what I'm doing here, but it really isn't. I made a lot of people a lot of money. And uh, about five years into this business, I was like, you know what? I got to do something for myself. I started a waxing salon called Hello Sugar. And we do Brazilian waxing and sugaring. And I did this because I really like the fundamental economics of a business that has repeat clients. I'm not in the room doing the waxing myself. And it had a pretty high margin to it as a company. And I just thought that looked really attractive to me. And what made us unique and different was the marketing. So I took everything from spending millions of dollars on Facebook and Google and built a company that is light years above every other company on the digital aspect. You know, I tell our company we're a technology company, we're a waxing company, but we're really a technology company because we're doing things very, very different than others right now. And so, yeah, that's where we are. Seven years later, I love the concept of like fail fast, prove the concept cheap. I started with three thousand dollars, guys. Three thousand dollars was my first salon. I put it inside of a plastic surgeon's office, Dr. Rafa in Paradise Valley, and he already had a table. He had all the equipment in there, so I just bought some wax, hired a first esthetician, and went from there. And we were testing different models out, packages, memberships, everything. First year, did about 70,000 revenue. Okay, sorry. Right. Second year, 370. Third year, 920. And then every single year doubled. And we're in our seventh year now. You don't get those margins of doubling every year by the end, but we're about 7-8 <laughs> million of revenue per year right now in Phoenix, Arizona. This is grown really fast.
1: I think that was one of the most exciting stories I've heard on our podcast yet of starting nice, you know from traveling and I think it's every entrepreneur's dream right getting to travel and live in another country and yeah and have this brilliant idea of what business you're gonna end up bringing back to the <laughs> states. Without getting into like the item 19 and your specific franchise opportunity. My first question was if I remember correctly like the margins on wax on the waxing service mm-hmm. is incredible, right? Because you're buying a can or whatever it's called for couple hundred dollars and then you're
0: selling it for months even your hair grows on a 28-day cycle so we do a monthly membership monthly memberships costing about fifty five dollars on average for a monthly membership your wax is costing a couple bucks the estheticians are about twenty five percent when it comes down to it plus taxes so gross profit for me in arizona is about fifty five percent and then you have your other costs on top of that like your rents and your advertising etc
2: of course that's incredible, man. So it's recurring revenue, obviously, was just amazing, especially from an exit standpoint, which we can get into. What I'm curious, though, is, I mean, were you just initially investigating different types of businesses that you could get into? I mean, were you just looking at different industries that you felt made sense? Or how did you back into like waxing and sugaring? Was it just happenstance?
0: How did that happen? It's just, you know, I love vaginas. I'm just super passionate about the industry. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, I was just playing, man. Yeah, I talked to a guy who sells businesses. He values businesses. I was like, what do you do to get a higher multiple? And he said, there's three things. Number one is the business needs to be able to run itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I figure with waxing, I can't actually be in the room doing the waxing, right? So like that's check, check number one. Number two, the business needs to have a recurring revenue model. So software companies that pay on a monthly basis or a yearly basis perform at a higher multiple than say a restaurant who doesn't have a guaranteed revenue coming back. And what's really nice about waxing is the monthly membership. You know, your hair grows back every month. Unless I'm missing something here, the rest of our lives is going to be like that. You know, you might get laser, but most people, it's hair grows back every month. And then number three, there needs to be market share to take. And we were in an area, Phoenix, that's a very competitive market. You have European wax. There's over 30 European waxes in Phoenix right now. And that was the one I was most worried about. So that's why Proof of Concept started with a really small salon. And it was like Starbucks for us. We put one on the opposite corner. You know how they put them right next to each other. Like we put one on the opposite corner of a European wax. And we were profitable right from the start. So I knew with Concept, like, we could carve a niche into this industry. I like that. And then the other thing, we haven't talked about this. And it didn't start like this. Like Hello Sugar is like, kind of like a concept of like, Hey, sugar, give me some sugar. You know, like, show me love. Right. And I found that because when I was looking at all of the reviews of competitors, what I found was that the most common thing people said was, she makes me feel comfortable. Mm. And I wanted to find a way in a brand to help our people feel comfortable. And so I did that, you know, back to my marketing background, I did that by like, I put some ads online and one ad was like this fashionista, one was this girl at the beach, and one was this big girl. I found this big lines bikini concept on Google. I just copied the girl's face. I probably shouldn't have done this, but I just copied the picture off this bikini line. And I used it as my model on the Facebook ad. And I just did this to see what I wanted to do for my brand. And she got three times the engagement. And there's one comment I remember seven years later. So I love that you're using normal sized women on your ads. And from there on out, it was how do I make people feel comfortable? That's really the genesis of the brand.
1: I really like what you're saying about the idea of it running itself that you literally can't do the work. Like, does it doesn't make sense for you to be waxing yeah. you know, vagina. It would be probably a little strange, right? So yeah. the fact that you can't do it and you don't know how, I assume, you know, it tests to,
0: or, or do you? Have you learned how to, in your time running the business? Dan, you don't want me waxing, brother. You definitely <laughs> don't want me on the table. I'm going to just mess something up.
1: This is a little too personal, but I actually remember I one time got my chest waxed and it was yeah. like, episode of the 40-year-old virgin (laughs) and then i just did it for years and now it's like i don't have any hair so i will attest that it does cut down yes over time
0: nice took like years but now i'm not steve corral in that movie anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah 40-year-old virgin that's funny man that had to be so painful looking at his hair holy crap well the story behind it was
1: at the time
0: it's like 10 years ago almost or
1: eight years ago. And the girl I was dating at the time, she went to go get, you know, it was like a Saturday. She went to get her waxing appointment done. I had my coffee. I'm hanging out in a waiting room. And they have like this nice music playing. It's, it was European waxer. They had nice music playing. Yeah. Saturday, I'm just relaxing. And for some reason, this girl comes out that works there and says, do you want to get waxed? And I'm like, yeah, not right, sure. So I spontaneously go and I, you know, go into the room and they put me on the massage like tight chair and you know, there's the nice music playing and I'm relaxing. It's Saturday. And then they put the wax on. And honestly, like I felt like I was getting a massage, like everything's warm and nice and <laughs> I'm like excited. And then she rips the first <laughs> <laughs> strip. and it was literally out of the movie because I scream and then I get up like, you know, I probably said some vanities to her, <laughs> <laughs> at her. <laughs> Went to leave, and she's like, "You can't leave." It was the middle of summer, too, by the way. You can't leave now because you have like this strip,
0: and yeah, you know, you ridiculous. So <laughs> <laughs> you have to finish it off. <laughs> That's what's crazy, isn't it? Like women will go get boiling hot wax on their body, rip the hairs off. And still, they're scared of a little spider or a cockroach crawls across the ground. Harmless cockroach, and they're scared of this thing. But they will get waxed. Like it's—it blows my mind. The level of pain tolerance.
2: Yeah, not me, man. I think I had my eyebrows tweezed once, or not tweezed, but waxed, and I was like, "Nope, that's it for me. That's never happening again." No, nope, I'm just gonna <laughs> let the caterpillars grow on my forehead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, man. But I think that it's interesting because you didn't go in with like an industry in mind, it sounds like. It sounds like you were no. thinking about, okay, what do I want out of a business? What are the features of a business that will create the lifestyle that I want, but also maximize its value? Yeah, And I think when you kind of back into it that way, that's such a smart way to approach it. And that's what I talk to potential franchisees about all the time. Let's not start with the industry necessarily, but let's think about what do we want out of it? What matches with your skill sets? If you want to sell it someday, how are we going to maximize that multiple? Mm -hmm. And all these different things. Then you almost back into an industry that aligns with your skill sets, your financial wherewithal, etc. Versus starting with that out of the gate.
0: So yeah, I'm a dancer. And I learned this concept early on. So I actually moved to Spain. I trained under like the world champions for a while. I was like really into dancing. So I lived a year in Spain training out there. And I found a lot of my friends who were very passionate about dancing were very poor. Right? And it's because they're trying to make money in their passions. And like, you know, don't be passionate about an industry. Be passionate about making money. Be passionate about business itself. And that opens you up to so many more categories. And one of my favorite mentors, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett said, it's much more important when it comes to business strategy, the boat that you're in rather than how hard you row. And what he's saying by that is pick the right industry over picking how hard you're gonna work in that industry. It's going to make all the difference for you. Have to have the right vehicle, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so much more important. If you're in an industry that's shrinking and dying, you know, like you could be like, you know, in the food service industry. Pretty soon, automation is going to take a lot of those jobs out. It doesn't matter how hard you work in it. You might not find yourself, you know, wealthy generationally. So picking the right industry that has attractive growth to investors is really important. If your industry is shrinking, I would really consider finding a different industry early on.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because just going back to what we were talking about before the show, as we were hanging out before we hit yeah. the record button, I was saying how, you know, if you're listening, Brigham's got an incredible TikTok following on some of his videos. But I kid you not, out of like five or six signs in my life that said, Dan, you got to look at a different uh, business, which, you know, if you listen to shows, you know, I'm in a bit of a transition right now, just making these podcasts and learning from founders as I decide. Your video about, the two things between the video and what you just said, which on the video was if you're in a certain business, you could sell it at a multiple of, you know, three times, four times. Yeah. And I've always had this belief of like, yeah, but what if the EBIT is higher than, you know, really high EBITDA, you could sell it at three, four times. But the way you explained how with a franchise or system, the multiples that you get on that, mm-hmm. you know, my passion's always been helping people become a business owner. And, you know, where I've shifted is saying, wait a minute, being passionate about helping people become a business owner as a broker is actually only half of what being of that calling is. In other words, if you're really into making people business owners, well, why don't you not just help them become one, but actually help them succeed as a franchise or, you know, doing that. So, you know, you've been an inspiration to me, but so you're saying that, you know, perhaps you're not passionate about the waxing itself. You love the business. Like what gets you going in your business as a franchisor?
0: Yeah. So I used to teach entrepreneurship at a university up in Utah called Brigham Young University. It's actually named after me. No, i was kidding. That's <laughs> probably how I got the job. They're like, yeah, you have no credentials that make any sense here. But yeah, we'll take you because you have the name. And it was really cool. They gave me a blank slate. I could teach whatever I wanted. And I taught a class that I created called How to Start a Six-Figure Income for $3,000 or less. I started four businesses. All of them started at doing six figures or more. And all of them started for $3,000 or less. So it was, it was a proof of concept, scale fast with advertising. And I fell in love with watching students start a business that they would never need to work for a company again. That was my passion. And the first assignment of the semester was seven days, cold showers, three minutes each, set the timer. And the reason for that is if you can't be uncomfortable for three minutes, how are you going to be able to start a business, right? Right. And I also wanted people to think about pain and the idea of like, what's more painful, this unknown of starting a business or going to work for the man every day, 40 hours a week kind of thing. And so I found that I really have a passion for helping people start businesses. Like that's what gets me going. Wealthwise, I make enough money off Hello Sugar Arizona that I don't really need the money on the franchise side. But it just is so exciting to me. Like most of the business owners in Hello Sugar are like 25 to 30 years old. We're not talking these like uber wealthy guys that are like at the end of their stages in life. I've got salon estheticians starting franchises with us. One of my favorite stories is we have a girl and she's 20 years old. She started at 19 and her first year, she's already done over hundred K in profit, like just killed it, you know, like by the end. So like, let's say like by like month 12, her monthly amount was over hundred K yearly and she's absolutely crushing it at 20 years old. And that's like the coolest thing to me ever. Like that gets me up in the morning. There's really nothing better than seeing other people succeed. And you lay out the blueprint
2: and then they execute on it. I mean, they're responsible for their success, but just knowing that you had a piece of that and you kind of guided them in the right direction. I mean, that's got to be incredibly rewarding. It's freaking cool.
0: It's awesome, actually. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, our franchise is very different from the normal model. A normal franchise, like if you own a European, you're going to pay four to $500,000 to get started. You need to have probably two to 300000 in liquid assets and you'll finance most of it, but like you need to have some kind of wealth built up to be able to start a European or some of these other franchises. That's the same thing in almost every industry within the waxing community, at least ours. Fifty to seventy thousand dollars, and profit-wise, we can take these guys on.
1: From a franchisor standpoint, and a franchisee the business in a lot of ways runs itself as far as the technical work of the business and then you have a manager I assume that runs the day to day you have recurring revenue as a franchisee you know what's coming in on a monthly basis the market's continuing to grow you know as far as waxing and as you said it's definitely not shrinking because people continue to grow hair and then for you as a franchise, that's pretty interesting. So you have a lot of franchisees that are of that young, energetic, hungry age, 25, 30, yeah. 30 years old, yeah. being attracted to the model because its investment's lower. And what is a total investment?
0: Yeah, it's a lower investment. You know, fifty to 70000 is doable for most people. And then what makes us unique on that is the marketing. A lot of like, let's say you start a gym, you know, you're going to have to figure out Facebook ads. You're going to have to figure out some kind of marketing in your area. You can do your own marketing, but we do predominantly for all of our franchises, we do almost all the marketing for them, which is unreal in this industry. And the way we do that is, you know, my background is I'm a professional at Facebook and Google. That's my background. Paid advertising is my thing. So we do all the paid advertising and we're getting leads at this stupidly cheap rate. We're able to fill a salon before it even opens and we're able to keep that going, that momentum going, providing leads all the way through as these franchises go. So you take out the marketing. And then the other thing that we developed that is unprecedented in the industry is we do all the reception, all of the reception. So if somebody calls in, they text in, they Facebook chat, WhatsApp, whatever it is, we have a team in Belize and the Philippines so we can get lower costs than here in the United States and we outsource all of our reception. So in other words, similar like
1: if you're in the home services space, a lot of great home services brands are providing a call center that handles the calls coming in and scheduling the yeah. salesperson. You're doing that salon stamper, you're doing that. any inbound communications are handled by your team, taking that completely off the business owner's plate.
0: Yeah, and like it is enormously challenging. Like the factor of variables and challenge that happens when you go from one salon to like 100, it's like by a magnitude of 10 of that, right? So, I mean, you've got to figure out how do you handle 20,000 tickets coming in a day at 100 salons, right? Like 20,000 people trying to book appointments. I mean, that is an enormously complex problem that would be very difficult to reverse engineer. Like if you're building a house and you're like, you want to add technology, cool, you do it as you're building. But if you want to add technology after the house is built, it becomes more expensive and more difficult and sometimes impossible, right? So with us, like we from the start had the vision of we're gonna be able to do this at scale at a thousand locations. And we've been developing the technology on the systems, the processes. Like for example, we don't do calls. When you call in, it says, Hi, welcome to Hello Sugar. When you hang up, we'll immediately text you. And we text and say, How can we help you? That's like one way we take out some of the variables.
1: That's a technology like in an IVR system. Like someone calls in yeah. and it knows the number and texts
0: them. Yeah, yeah. And immediately we'll text them back. Interesting. Yeah. And then we also built an AI. So we built a chatbot that handles bookings for us. And we simultaneously A B tested this with humans. And it was really interesting because in the beginning, the human aspect was really solid. But with the AI being so fast, we increased conversions by like 30%. So we increased bookings. But here's the problem people knew it was an AI. So I read studies and the studies were like, hey, if you're talking to a robot, they want to have an option to talk to a human. So on all my bookings, I put, talk to a human, talk to a human. And these were called leads, right? These are leads coming in from Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And so when they saw that they were talking to a robot and they booked an appointment just fine, we went from a 50 to 75% first-time show rate to a 13% show rate, 13%. It was destroying our business for these newer salons. Luckily, we only tested on one location. So it wasn't like, you know, killed everyone. So what I had to do was I had to go back with this chatbot, this automation, and I had to make it seem human. So then we tested it with the humans. I ran the chatbot process on the humans and the chatbot process on the chatbot. And again, we had the higher booking rates on the chatbot because it's faster. But nobody knew it was a robot. It passed you know, the narrow space Turing test, you could say. And because of that, like our booking stayed higher. I think it was the idea that people thought if they were talking to a robot, they could no-show. That's what I think it was. It's interesting too, because that'll probably change as time
1: goes on, right? Our standards of how we interact with AI or with a robot. But
0: you're like almost ahead of your time in some ways. (laughs) I think so. I think we're the most technologically advanced salon out there. If you're enjoying this episode,
2: please click the subscribe button. And make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. What I liked as well was just the fact that rather than just roll that out system-wide, you're like, hey, let me test this. One location first, before we say, you know, let's do it everywhere. I think that's obviously smart.
0: Yeah, you think about this as like a franchise or your responsibility is to make sure that your franchisees are taken care of, right? Like, you know, you got to protect them. Yeah. And so unless I can empirically, right, with data, say that this is better than what we're doing before, I can't roll that out to them.
2: Exactly. And this is what franchisees need to keep in mind where they're thinking, why am I paying a royalty? Why am I paying a franchise fee? Well, it's because... All of the trial and error, all of these things that you're not really having to go through because it's getting tested, split tested at the or level. I mean, it's saving you a lot of headache, time, money, pain, blood, sweat, tears. So I hear you loud and clear.
0: Yeah. You know, can I talk on that for a second? So like the franchise franchisor model I sat with for a long time. And I'm looking at it because we build in a lot of salon suites. They're like 10 by 10 rooms. That's how we get it so cheap. We build these tiny one room studios right away. And I'm looking at these salon, like solo salon lofts like all these different brands of salon lofts. And you know they basically help you find a location and then you're paying them a 6% royalty for the next 10 years. And at first it's like, this is really cool. You helped me start a business. But once you're up and running and they know the business, it's like, you kind of feel a little jaded and a little irritated that you keep paying somebody for something you could do yourself, right? And so that sat with me for a long time. How do we find a marriage where we're not only just like helping you set up and then you do your thing, but we're a strategic partner that's providing value for the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. And that's where the reception and the marketing came in. It's like, okay, yeah, we're not only going to provide you a really strong brand, we're also doing the reception for you and the marketing. And we're a partner in this. And I needed that to make us have that connection that would last more than just startup. Provide value beyond because like the margin of value
1: proposition diminishes right as a franchisee because you become more and more successful and exactly. you forget that you most likely would not have been able to be successful but you're continuing to provide value even when in theory that value goes down the lead gen is huge I mean to me if as a franchise or you can provide systems and lead generation and I think that's an area I'm just having this conversation with a friend of mine that's the COO of a franchise system about you know focusing on lead generation for the franchisees is so often lacked on the franchise or side, and it's so important. So is that your
0: goal, a thousand locations, or what's your goal in like three, five, 10 years? You know, market saturation would be bigger than European wax. So right now, I'm very focused on how do we get more salons in European? That's who we're coming after. And most of the salons out there, the waxing salons, you take away... They're pretty name and they're pretty face and they're the exact same as European. European was really the pioneer in this industry and they control most of the market share for a reason. They do things really well. I want to disrupt that. And we're disrupting that by having a lower cost, providing marketing that is like unseen in this industry and providing the technological resources to scale fast through having the reception. You know, most of our franchisees don't own one location. They want to own a bunch of them. They want to control a market because that's where the real wealth generation is. And we can do it much faster than any other salon because of how cheap the startup cost is. So yeah, our goal, make it be known, is to take on European wax.
2: You heard it here. You heard it here first. Yep. <laughs> I love that, man. So there's obviously a differentiator in terms of like for the franchisee, mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of the business, it's easier to get into than a European wax, for example. But On the consumer side of things,
0: is there a huge differentiator or what's the value proposition and how does it differ? Well, one, it's super easy to book an appointment because you can do it through text. You can do it through the website, which is like super easy. And two, we do sugaring as well as waxing. So if sugaring is like another form of organic hair removal, it doesn't create as many ingrowns for some people and it hurts less for some people. I got to asterisk this with some people. Some people don't see any difference at all. Yeah. Dan knows all about this. Yeah. So, like, yeah, (laughs) with European, they do hard wax. They're not usually about soft wax. We're doing hard wax, soft wax. We got sugar. We have a male waxing wax, you know, it's for males. Mm. So, it's like better. And so, instead of having our proprietary one type of wax, you know, not every body is like that. You need different options. And so, we have Mm. the different options depending on the body type. And the second thing is the skill level of our estheticians. Are we, hire very, very good estheticians. We pay them better than anyone else in the Valley, Phoenix. And then we also have a school that they go to and the school's phenomenal. The schools are top estheticians training. We got a whole curriculum. It's like next level on that. So jumping back real quick, there's 800 European yeah. you know,
1: Wax Center. Is that correct? I just Googled it or are there more than that now. 878. 878. 879 so is the first goal, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me... Just the fact that the, the, and they're not, I understand that. But even if you just took them at baseline, if both services were the same European your and yours, if they were, I know they aren't, yeah. but you take, you were able to market it significantly better because of your skill set of doing yeah. Google and Facebook. I mean, to me, it, from a purchasing of the franchise system standpoint, that would be a number one you know reason for me. Right. I could get in. And I also assume that, you're available, as you mentioned, you do well near a European wax center or near another waxing. Yeah. So all your prime territories are available, right? Because you've got all this open market
0: for you. Think of the concept of a one-room suite versus a four-room flagship with a receptionist. Our flagships are reception-less. So even those are like even cheaper to do than the others. But these are approximates. But if you're a year in business and you have 500 to 600 clients, you're going to be making... I can't give you promises on this, but I have stores that are like, you know, they're six-figure incomes off of that. For a European to do the same thing with their cost being so much higher, rent is four times as much, they're paying another $5,000 for a receptionist, all the extra marketing, the staff, the hourly wage differences of the employees because you need a lot of employees and there's a lot of variables. You got to be doing way more volume to hit that same amount. So just running as lean as we are, that's what keeps us like in the game, even right next to a European.
1: So I assume that you're attracting some that come over. Like, I think back to my funny Steve Carell story, but I went to that same girl that ripped that first strip. I would travel from Hoboken and even New York to go there when I went because I wanted that one person. And when she moved, I went there. So like,
0: you have people that happens with your brand? Look, you're naked on a table. You're extremely vulnerable. The likelihood that you want to put your lady parts in front of a lot of people is very low. So absolutely, there's high brand loyalty, but not brand loyalty, esthetician loyalty. Yeah, right. That's what's interesting. We didn't talk about that either.
1: They're almost like their own business owner within your employees actually really care about showing up because it's their clientele and most of their money is made, I assume, off of tips. And so kind of like they're really self-sufficient within your salon too, right?
0: Yeah, they're not independent contractors. They're not that level. But they're somewhere in the hybrid middle, right? Where an esthetician is making about 40% of their money comes from tips. And you know we're looking to hire people that, from the start, make people feel comfortable. That's the goal, right? And that's where the estheticians really thrive if they're able to do that. So from a hiring standpoint, I mean, how do you vet someone's ability to make someone comfortable? Is it just conversations? I mean, how do you do that? Because that seems kind of subjective. I'll tell you a story about this. So we were three years in, we had four people in the room interviewing and three of us loved this person. And the fourth one was like, I don't know. And I'm like, what do you not know about her? She was fantastic. And then she's like, I don't know. Did you, I swear this is a real story. Did you see her nails? Her nails were black. I just can't get over that. And she didn't want to hire Mm. Like, how can someone be so superficial that that's what they're looking at? Now in aesthetics, you know, if you go to aesthetic school, you're all about beauty and industry and helping people feel beautiful. And so like, how could somebody with these black nails, according to this esthetician, work here, right? And so then I realized that people have different qualities and they prioritize things differently. And I didn't like that. And I'm all about empirical data. So I said, okay, what are the qualities that make a good employee in my industry? We want people to feel comfortable. I need people to sell. I need people to show up on time. And I need people to be presentable. Those are the four qualities. Rate them. Put them in priority. Mm. And then so I said, okay, like every one of those qualities gets a metric of zero to five points. But if you're making people feel comfortable, there's a multiplier of three. And if you're showing up looking pretty, there's no multiplier. So then they get a point value based on the actual objective metrics that we're looking at. And that's how we hire. So we hire based on the point value, and not some subjective, this person's got pretty nails. <laughs> makes sense. I mean, I like that you just take everything from a, an empirical standpoint. You're looking at data.
2: You're not making decisions based off of a subjective feeling. You're saying, here's the actual data to support this. And I think that's the only way to really run a successful business at the end of
0: the day. We're talking back a little bit about this. And I wanted to kind of get into a different subject here. I know most of the podcast listeners are looking at potential franchisees to join, or maybe they're franchisors looking to add value to franchisees. One thing I want to talk about is like how to choose a good franchisor. You know, me now being in this state, like I can say, okay, I understand better what to look for in a franchise or that I didn't know before. Now in this industry, I've seen people wanting to do franchises and they just go after starting a franchise to start a franchise. Like that's their goal. And that's great. And that's respectable. But if I were a franchisee, I would want to see proof of concepts with more than one location. I would want to see a couple locations, they're doing well, they've done well for a while, they're seasoned, and that's where I'm going to look for, for a franchisee. It's very strange to me to have a one concept store and then just go 50 proof of concepts, like, let's just go. That's a little strange. The second thing is I've talked to a lot of franchisees of different concepts where the franchisor was not very involved. Like they never met the owner. They never had the experience of talking to them. They don't have communication. And maybe, you know, I'm like idealistic because we're small, but I've really been trying to find a way to always connect to our franchisees. And one of the things we do differently is have you heard of Loom? Yeah, I know Loom. Yeah. Dude, Loom changed my life. It's a video recording thing. You can see my face, you can see the screen, and I can send you a link. It's like, The most amazing thing possible. So, a couple of times a week, just like I'm addicted to TikTok, I create these looms a lot like TikTok. I want them three minutes or less. You know, I want the sound bites to be fast and I update our company on new things that are happening in the company. And I'm doing that constantly. I'm meeting once a month with every franchisee. And, you know, maybe if I add a thousand locations, that'll change. But right now, that's where we're at. And then the third thing that I think we did differently is I started a franchise location myself in another state. I did it easily. You know, not easily. I, I did it over seven years in Arizona. But I wanted to know if I could do it myself in another state. I invested my own money. I built my own franchise. And I ran it like it would be a franchise to show profitability there as well. That was scary for me, you know, starting that. But I wanted to put my money where my mouth was and set the example in leading the franchises. I think
2: that's what all the good franchisors are supposed to do, right? I mean, yeah. but you're absolutely right. Not all do. But yeah, you're thinking, look, if I'm going to invest in this franchise concept, As a franchisee, I want to make sure that the franchisor has done their homework. Like you said, they've proven the concept. Mm -hmm. This isn't an industry that they just picked and they're deciding to franchise from the get-go. You're saying, well, I have the successful model. Now let me franchise it because I've proven it out. I've vetted it out. Whereas if you're a franchise concept that is wanting to franchise from the get-go and you haven't necessarily proven that concept, well, then all of the risk really is on the franchisee, they're almost like your little guinea pigs versus you took that on yourself, you proved it out. And then you're saying, I have a model, this works. And then it's de-risking. Not entirely, there's always risk in business, but it's de-risking from the franchisee standpoint.
0: Yeah, it's de-risking. That's exactly right. And you know, from a franchisor standpoint, I'll be honest, Like the amount of diligence that a franchisee does before picking our business is surprisingly lower than I thought. I would have expected more questions asked to me before. I think people like a concept. They're idealized by something doing well and then they go right into it. I think they need to think more about like the economics behind it. Remember the boat analogy. It's more important the boat you're in than how hard you row. It's just like picking a partner or a wife, right? Like you could have a wife that really sucks. <laughs> you know, she might be beautiful, but she sucks as a person and it makes her life really difficult. Business is the same way. You've got to pick a concept if you're going to go into business that lends itself to be successful out the gate. Right. A lot of it, I would say, you know, 50% is industry and company specific. And then 40% is probably the people you're involved with. You know, you look at the reason private equity groups choose really good leaders is because they make that much of a difference in the success of a company. And then there's probably 10% external factors like the economy, the recessions, the job industries, etc.
2: Yeah, no doubt. And that's something that I hope the audience picked up on because the intangibles are important. It's very easy to be super left brain and let me look at the numbers. What's my ROI? What's my cash on cash return? All those things are important. You have to think about that. But you also need to get a feel for what is your gut telling you? There is an element of that too. And do I like the people that are on the corporate team? Do I like the staff? Does the culturally, do I feel like it's the right fit? You know, right people, right seat, that whole thing. And I think it's very easy to just get super caught up in the numbers and not really focus on Am I going to enjoy being in business with these people yes. for, you know, 5, 7, 10 years? I mean, the average franchise agreement is 10 years or so. I mean, so yeah, I've heard a lot of people say, hey, buying a franchise is almost like getting married. I mean, yeah, like a 10-year marriage, I guess, but it's at least a long-term, serious, committed relationship, right? And so you got to make sure, do I like these people?
0: Yeah. And like, are these people looking out for my best interest? Right. Right. Because what happens on the franchise side, on my side, is franchisors are going to get bought by a private equity company. Like if they're doing something right, they're going to get money. They're going to get invited to be part of a private equity group or a strategic investor of some sort. And when that happens, those pegs, private equity groups, are going to try to take 51% control. And when they take control, now you as the franchisor vying for your job you're applying, you're interviewing for your own job. And you could get booted because you don't have control. So once they hit you know, a good number of salons, like let's say 50 plus, 100 plus locations, guarantee there's peg money involved. And there should be, Like right? You need that to get to the next level. Like So that's not a bad thing. But if you're not the right franchisor, they're going to pick somebody who is. And keep in mind, the private equity's goal is to make money. The private equity goal is not to run your business with quality, it's to make money. And they're looking for a five-year commitment and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no evil in this, right? I mean, I don't want to discredit what a private equity does because you need them. But you know they have investors, limited partners, who are looking to get a return on their money and they're going to get in and out probably within five years. So they're financially incentivized to build as many territories as possible, as quick as possible. Not really looking at the iterations and the quality as much as how do we get the return. And so up until now, I haven't taken money. And part of this is, I really want to make sure that our business is what I want it to be before we frame to the next level. That's been a big thing for me. And I'm not going to take money until I feel really good about that. And so to give you an idea, like our first three locations, our first franchisees outside of Arizona... I had one that I did myself. I had one in Idaho and one in Houston, Texas. We had two buddies of mine started a franchise. And we struggled like crazy. We had so many mistakes and failures. And I lost so much sleep during that time. I can't even tell you how scared I was and stressed. And my business was doing amazing. I was making seven figures on my business in Arizona. And I was stressed out of my mind about these friends of mine that put their life savings up you know, starting their businesses. And we figured out the mistakes. And I said, okay, let's do another round of iteration. We brought in, you know, three or four more, did a round, figured out those mistakes. And then each round of... I call it like software iterations. Each round got a little bit better, a little bit more smooth until where we are now. And I feel very good about the product. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing
2: that even though you were doing well, you care so much about your friends and their success that... I mean, obviously not fun to lose sleep, but... It's good to hear that you care, though, so much. You know, It's not just about lining your own wallet, but making sure that if other people are going to bet on you and the model that you've created, then you want to make sure that they're successful. And I can't stress enough the importance of being in business with somebody that feels that way. Yeah. Because not every franchisor is created equal. Some people, unfortunately, are just in it for the money. And that is the primary objective for them. And there are those like you, Brigham, who actually give a shit about
0: their franchisees and seeing franchisees' success. So I think that's fantastic. My name's on it. At the end of the day, my name's on it. And I'm not going to put something out there. I'm not going to have people risk the farm, bet their livelihood on something my name's on and not really believe in the product 100%. I mean, there's no money in the world. You couldn't pay me enough money to do that. It doesn't make sense to me. I love that. It
2: scares me, actually. Yeah. Well, it should. And I think if you're a decent person, that is how you would feel. But Sometimes business can be cutthroat. Although I do believe that the best people in business tend to have the mindset that you have.
0: It goes back to incentives, right? Like, you know, if you're run by a company who needs a return long-term and that's who's the CEO and in charge of something, the incentive might not be the same as the incentive of somebody who's backing this from the original like perspective. So I'm not saying it won't be. Like there's some really quality private equity groups and like CEOs out there that are run that way but you need to be careful and you need to ask the right questions to know if that's who you're working with. I think that's great advice. Well, awesome. Man. I think this has been a
2: tremendously fantastic conversation. There's a lot of great value and golden nuggets in here. Thanks, man. Before we wrap up though, is there anything in terms of advice, parting wisdom that you'd like to leave the
0: audience with before we go? We talked about a lot. I'm going to do a, if it's okay, a 30-second unsolicited soundbite for Hello Sugar. Sure, do it. Not okay, yeah. <laughs> We're a Hello Sugar, a Brazilian waxing and sugaring franchise, fifty dollars to $70,000 startup. We're growing rapidly. And you know, we're looking for new franchisees that are solid people, solid business owners with some experience in business, hopefully. And people who care and are passionate about business. So if that's you and you're interested, head to the website, hellosugar.salon. hit on the franchise section and fill out the paperwork and we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Well, Brigham, thanks so much for coming on. I think this was, like I said, just
2: tremendously valuable for the audience. I'm sure. Thanks, man. I know for me, it's always nice hearing people with your heart. I think is really fantastic. So, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you haven't already, all the good stuff, you know, share it, leave a review that's honest, tell people about the podcast, etc. And we'll see you on the next episode.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast.
2: If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com.